see everybody here this morning. If you do have a copy of God's Word, just want to invite you to open up to John 7. We are now out of John 6. We are in John 7. We'll be in verses 1 through 24 this morning. So go ahead and, and turn there. A few months ago, I was sitting across the table from a dear friend of mine, and he asked me one of those softball questions that I think we all wish our unbelieving friends would ask us. Um, We're sitting there, we're talking, and he says, Matt, I've been wanting to ask you this for a while, but what is the difference between Christianity and all the other religions? I just put the ball basically right there on the tee. What's the difference between Christianity and all the other religions? And of course, the answer to that question is grace. It's grace in and through Jesus Christ. John 1, 14, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. And then two verses later, John 1, 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You see, in other religions, we pridefully attempt to make our way to God as though we could fill the chasm between us and him that's created by our sin. Holy God, unholy, wicked people, big gap, we can make up the difference. In Christianity, God makes his way down to us and he makes a way for us in and through his son Jesus, and it's all purely undeserving grace. Now, that's the condensed version of an hour, hour and a half long conversation over lunch. But my friend responded to this with something that sounded remarkable. He responded and said, man, I think I get it. I think I understand what you're saying. I see now that Christianity really is different than all the other religions that are out there. And of course, I begin to get excited. I perk up. I sit up in my, in my seat praying that I would see right before me a man go from death to life. But then the next words out of his mouth were, now I don't believe it, but ideologically I, I get it. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating but he didn't believe. Now in those moments, when you have people you love sitting right in front of you who understand, but they don't believe, don't we feel hopeless? Like there's nothing that I can do to make this person turn the corner to go from just contemplating things to confessing sin, to go from pondering stuff to actually praising God. And we think, I don't know how I could explain this any better or how I could apply it any more sharply to their heart. And so sometimes we're left wondering why. Why didn't this person believe? What's at the root of that unbelief? Why do people who get it not get it? And for those of us in this room, what's at the bottom of our own rejection of the truth? 
John 7, 1 through 24 exists to answer those questions. And one of the major takeaways that you're going to see in these verses is that there is a foundational moral component to unbelief. If you could excavate all the layers of unbelief and get all the way down to the bedrock of what lies underneath it, what would be at the bottom of it? Well, it wouldn't be the inability for people to grasp concepts. People can certainly understand the words that come out of Jesus's mouth. Intelligence is not the issue. So at the bottom of unbelief, you wouldn't find the inability to grasp concepts, but you would find the unwillingness to love them. The issue is not one of the head, it's an issue of the heart. And so my prayer this morning is that God would totally strip us of all the wicked heart blockades that keep us from belief. I pray that you would consider your own heart and that God would destroy the bedrock of pride that is at the bottom. It is a terrifying thing to consider this, but obviously true. If we know our own hearts, it's terrifying, but obviously true that at the root of unbelief, there's something moral. It's a heart problem, not a head problem. I heard this question on a podcast recently that said, do people fail to believe in Jesus because they can't or because they don't want to? Or is it that they can't because they don't want to? So I hope you see what I mean by a moral component to unbelief, that people don't want to believe. And we want to know why. What's at the bottom of that? And so it's important for us to see it in John chapter 7. In this chapter, there are two groups of unbelieving people. The first group is Jesus's brothers. The second group is the Jewish crowd. And so we're going to take a look at both of them. The first group, Jesus's brothers. These are the sons of Joseph and Mary. So let's read starting in verse one. After this, meaning after Jesus fed the 5,000 and had the bread of life discourse that we spent the last couple of weeks on. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus is going about in Galilee doing ministry about six months 
have elapsed between the time of the feeding miracle and the Feast of Booths. And the key but startling verse here is verse 5 that says, For not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers at this point in time were not believers. So James, the writer of the book that we went through as a church, at this point in time was an unbeliever. That's the first group of unbelievers. The second group is the Jewish crowd. So let's read starting in verse 10. But after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly like his brothers wanted him to do, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Referring back to a few chapters before where he healed the paralyzed man on the Sabbath. I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now the key verse to show the unbelief of this crowd is verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Now it doesn't literally say it as clearly with the brothers at this time they were unbelievers but i think it's safe to assume that you can't believe that jesus is god and demon possessed at the same time this is obvious unbelief so the brothers of jesus are unbelievers the jewish crowd are unbelievers now as we look into these two unbelieving groups i think we can learn a lot about unbelief we learn about the fruit of unbelief and the root of unbelief. The fruit is mixed. The root is moral. Now, what I mean by that is that unbelief shows itself in a mixed bowl of fruit. There's brothers-like unbelief and there's crowd-like unbelief. It's mixed. It doesn't always look the same. But the root is. The root is the same. 
the root is always moral. So there might be many fruits of unbelief. There's one root. Its fruit is mixed. Its root is moral. We'll spend time on both of these. Let me first show you how the fruit is mixed. And all we need to do is compare the two unbelieving groups. On the one hand, you have Jesus' brothers, and their unbelief is sort of masked in what looks like proximity to Jesus and praise for Jesus. You couldn't get any closer to Jesus than being his brothers. These four guys, James, Jose, Judas, Simon, they were Jesus' brothers. So they almost, more than anybody else on the planet, were always in close proximity to him. They grew up with Jesus. They sat around the dinner table eating whatever Mary prepared that evening. Imagine they went outside to play games and go on walks. They would get scrapes and bumps and bruises when they fall down and get patched up together. They would do chores around the house together. I'm sure they watched their dad do, carp- uh, do carpentry. They prayed as a family. They would sing songs as a family. Every holiday would be together as a family. This is family-like proximity to Jesus because they were his brothers. We don't get the sense that they didn't like him. They weren't staying as far away from him as possible. They're with him, seeing all the things that he's doing in Galilee as he's going about. They were present with him. They were in close proximity. But on top of that, there was also a sense of praise for what Jesus could do. If we look back at verses 3 and 4, his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. Now, the word also indicates to us that they're seeing it. Go do it there so they also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That doesn't sound like unbelief, does it? It sounds like praise for what Jesus can do. His miracles are awesome. I mean, they've seen it with their own eyes. So in their mind, they're thinking, Jesus, the works that you're doing need to be seen. If you want to be known, if you want to be established, as a, especially as a public figure, you can't just keep doing things out here in Galilee for another six months. You need to go to Jerusalem, the big city, the metropolis, where all the religious rulers are. They could affirm you. That's where everyone's going for the feast right now, too. Go, show your works to the whole world. Everybody. Sounds like praise. Verses three through four sound like praise. Sounds like a desire for Jesus to be known by more and more people. But then verse five throws us off. Because John adds this little comment on the back side of that to tell us why they said it. For not even his brothers believed in him. Isn't that strange? They wanted Jesus to go show himself to the world for or because not even they believed in him. I don't know what you make of that. Perhaps they wanted Jesus to be popular so they could have him as their claim to fame. Perhaps they're only concerned with his miracles and not with what he really came to do when he would go to Jerusalem. Maybe like the multitudes that Jesus fed a chapter earlier, they're just after Jesus for all of his cool tricks and their own self-glorification. 
not for who he truly is. So whatever it is that you make of it, this is clear, that unbelief can look like these brothers. It can look like proximity to Jesus, and it can look like infatuation with him. And so when John tells us that his brothers weren't believers at this time, it shows us something about the fruit of unbelief, how it might materialize, that just because someone grew up around Jesus or likes his miracles doesn't mean they believe in him. Just because someone grew up in church or because they like theology doesn't make them a Christian. Just because someone has a favorable opinion about Jesus doesn't mean they trust in him for life. And so we need to be careful to not fool ourselves with false hopes. There is a sweet, if you will, fruit in the fruit bowl of unbelief. It's sweet. It's kind of nice. Non-antagonistic. But there's more fruit than just that because we also see the Jewish crowd. And in the crowd's case, the fruit of unbelief is different from the brothers. So the brothers had family proximity and a, a kind of praise for the things he was doing. They took joy in Jesus, just wrongly, not for what he came to do, but for what they wanted him to be. The Jewish crowd is different. In verse 12, some of them said, he's leading the people astray. And as we pointed out before in verse 20, they say, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Now that's different from being nice and cordial and favorable to the thought of Jesus. That is antagonistic fruit. It's bitter fruit instead of kind of sweet. It's the no-brainer of unbelief, right? Like, of course, the self-proclaimed atheist is an unbeliever. Of course. Of course, the person who tells you off just because you share the gospel or the person who persecutes you or the family member who ridicules or the friend who's always poking fun at Christianity, of course, that person's an unbeliever. It's obvious. It's the bitter fruit of unbelief. So there's sweet and there's bitter all stemming from this unbelief. And I think that's important for us to grasp that unbelief can materialize itself in different ways. I had a conversation with a pastor friend of mine and he told me about one of his friends and his friend's dying days. About once a week for the last several months of this guy's life, he would go and he'd visit him in the hospital. Each time he'd visit, they would have small talk, and then my friend would always say to his friend, he'd always get to the gospel with him and always ask him, will you place your faith in Jesus as your savior? Knowing that his time is coming. And each time this guy would kindly decline. So one, one day my buddy told him that if he didn't come to Jesus as his savior for life, for forgiveness, that he would spend an eternity apart from him in a place called hell. And his friend looked at him and said, you know, I really, really appreciate you. Every single week you come in here and you share your heart with me. And that really means a lot. It makes me know that you care about me, that you love me. But if it is the way that you said it is, 
when I die, I'm okay with that. And then my friend told me on the phone, he said, Matt, sometimes a hard heart looks mean and aggressive. Sometimes it can be very nice and sweet. The fruit of unbelief is mixed. But the root of unbelief is not. The root of unbelief is moral. Whether the fruit seems sweet or bitter, the tree is just the same. The roots are ruined. And I think that we see in this text that the root of unbelief for both of these groups is pride. God-hating, sin-loving pride. There are a couple of verses that I think make it clear. There's one when Jesus talks with his brothers and there's one when Jesus talks with the crowds. He speaks to two different unbelieving groups who express their unbelief in dramatically different ways, but he tells them both that the root issue of their unbelief is their heart, that it's a moral problem. So look at what Jesus says to his brothers in verses five through seven. Verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus is not like his brothers because his brothers are of the world and they want to display Jesus to the world. Jesus is making something very clear that revealing himself to the world will not get them what they want. It will not bring them praise and acclamation from other people. They might think that because the world loves them. So maybe they'll treat Jesus the same way. The world won't treat Jesus the same way. The world hates Jesus. And our question of why is answer is answered. Why does the world not believe in Jesus? What's at the root of this unbelief that the brothers don't get? He says, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The second verse is when he says something similar from a morality standpoint to the crowd in verse 17. They're just saying, how can he say this stuff if he's unlearned? And Jesus makes it clear in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So what is he telling them? The reason you don't know that what I'm saying is from God is because your will is not to do his. Unbelief is moral. It's rooted in not wanting to be told you're a sinner because your will is not God's will. We want our sin. We don't want what God wants. You see, the reason for unbelief is not because people don't comprehend the message. It's not because they don't understand it. It's not because they can't deduce the meaning of Jesus's words from a grammatical standpoint and make it make sense. The reason for unbelief is because the world does comprehend it. The world does understand it. Jesus is saying we are sinners. 
Jesus is saying our works are evil. Jesus is saying our will is not God's will and we just don't like it. The root of unbelief is moral. But it's true that we are sinners, that the world is in sin. In the next chapter, Jesus is going to elaborate on this idea using the same word of will and why they, why they don't will what God wills and why they don't believe the truth. And you're going to see it's moral once again. Chapter 8, verses 43 through 47. Why do you not understand what I say? Now, he could respond to that question that he asks them and say, well, because I haven't explained it to you enough. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar. He's the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Not because they don't understand. It's because of what he's telling them. Because I'm telling you true things, you don't believe me. Verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. As a general rule, isn't it true that we don't like being told that we're sinners or that there's something wrong with us or that what we're doing is wrong? Isn't it hard for us to bear to listen to it? And this cuts right at the root issue of pride. No matter what fruit your unbelief produces, the root is exactly the same. If you're living in open, blatant sin, Perhaps you're closer to the one who yells that Jesus has a demon. Then the message of the cross is that you are a sinner, that your deeds are evil, but Jesus paid the penalty for sin. And that's good news, but it requires you to come to an end of yourself and to recognize that what you're doing is wicked. And that is an offensive message. But if that's where you're at and it's offensive to you, then I plead with you to not be like the people who couldn't bear to hear it. Don't reject Jesus and life itself just because you don't want to stop doing something that brings death. At the same time, your sins may seem a little more tame. You might be a moral person, an outstanding citizen, a respectful child, a, a good student, a loving friend a loving sibling. You don't go and, and get involved in all the grossly outward sins of the world. You're more like the brothers than the crowd. You're not going to speak poorly of Jesus. You're not going to speak poorly of those who believe in him. I mean, they're nice people. I mean, perhaps you've gone to church your entire life. You were raised in a Christian home. And so you feel proximity to Jesus and his people. If that's where you're at, Jesus testifies to you as well that your deeds are evil. And that cuts to your pride. The cut to our pride there is that if this is you, 
you must come to recognize with all of your accolades and all of your good morals and all of your upbringing that you too are not a good person. To truly believe in Jesus and to come to him for what he offers requires you to come to an end of yourself and to rest in him alone. God's will is that sinners would come to an end of themselves, not glorifying themselves and their works and what they do, but that they would glorify Jesus. Is that your will? Or do you in your pride will something else? Do you hate the testimony that you're a sinner who is in need? Either because you want to keep sinning or because you don't want to admit that you have any sin worth forgiving. God's will is that people would be united to him by grace and sheer grace alone. And grace means fundamentally that you can't earn it. That's why it's such a wonderful message. Grace. Who hates grace? All of us. That's why such a message of grace is so despicable to the world because we want to earn it. But if Jesus testifies that our deeds are evil, we can't. And we must be willing to lay down trust in ourselves and to trust in him. So the root of unbelief is moral. It's a heart problem. The fruit is mixed, but the root is this prideful self-trust that is opposed to God's will. As we close, we hear these things, and the question is, what do I do now? So here's a few directions on how to apply this and to live this out. The first would be to check your heart. The people don't believe because Jesus testifies that their deeds are evil. That's the issue. It's because their will is not to do God's will. Now that, of course, in general is applied to unbelievers there. But even for us as Christians, we're called to keep on believing. So we ought to check our hearts as well. When you struggle to see the goodness of God's word in something that is taught, or when you struggle to see how you would benefit by obedience to his commands, ask yourself, what is the sin that's blocking my vision here? It's not a matter of the intellect. Where is my will opposed to God's will in this matter? And I'm seeking my own glory instead of God's glory because the issue is moral. This completely changes the way that we view our lives. I'm not doing this thing. Why? There's something wrong with me. It's not because I just don't understand it. So we ought to check our hearts and constantly be repenting trusting in Jesus and coming back to his word and realizing whatever wickedness there's in me, search it out, remove it from me. Here's the second consideration, and that is, do not be afraid to talk about sin. Sometimes we think that we have to avoid the topic of sin in order to be winsome. But Jesus 
says that he is testifying constantly that the world's deeds are evil. And that wasn't necessarily a winsome message. Their response to Jesus is intricately tied to their response to being told that they're sinners. Whether or not they come to him or don't is whether or not they listen to the message that your deeds are evil and you need a savior. So if we avoid the very thing that Jesus testified about, you're not winning people to the Jesus who saves from sin. You're winning them to a fake Jesus who approves their sin. And so we need to take sin seriously. Here's the third thing. Don't assume people like the brothers of Jesus are better off than people like the crowd. One seems sweet, close, respectful. The other seems combative and hateful. But they both have the same root. As my friend Clint says, he says, just because you staple pictures of fruit to a dead tree doesn't make it alive. And so let's avoid the temptation to think that this person has a good chance and that person doesn't. And let's avoid the temptation to not share the gospel with the church kid just because they're well behaved. So I'm sure everything's good. I'm sure they know Jesus. They also need to know that they need Jesus just as desperately as the other sinners. So that's third. Here's the fourth thing. Pray. Pray for God to remove the blockades of pride from you and from others. Pray for God to remove the root of unbelief out from underneath you. Pray that you would never stumble over hearing that you are a sinner. Pray that you wouldn't trip over the message of grace. Pray that you wouldn't scoff at the fact that you need a savior. Pray that you wouldn't scorn the truth of not being able to earn your salvation. And when you sit across the table with a friend who's fascinated but unbelieving, pray that God would change their heart. Even Jesus' brother James eventually came to believe and the Lord used him to write a book of the Bible as well. And so it should be obvious to us that God's saving grace might be extended to you and your friend across the table as well.